0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I sit down with Tom Davenport. Tom is a professor of information technology and management at Babson College, the co-founder of the International Institute for Analytics, a fellow of the MIT Center for Digital Business, and a senior advisor for Deloitte Analytics. He also pioneered the concept of competing on analytics. We talk about how his ideas have evolved since writing the seminal work on that topic, Competing on Analytics, the New Science of Winning. We also talk about his new book, Only Humans Need Apply, Winners and Losers in the Age of Smart Machines, which looks at how AI is impacting businesses. We also talk more broadly about how AI is impacting society and what we need to do to keep ourselves on a utopian path. Enjoy the episode.
1: Thank you for joining me today, Tom. My pleasure. So you pioneered the concept of competing on analytics about a decade ago in a book titled Competing on Analytics: The New Science of Winning. Can you talk a bit about your journey since publishing that book and how you've seen the concept play out and how your ideas have evolved?
2: Sure. So, much to my surprise, analytics turned out to be a very popular topic. Um, and so I you know, I probably would have moved on to something else much more rapidly, but, you know, there was too much demand. So I I wrote it, then co-authored another book called Analytics at Work, which is how um, companies could really sort of build their analytical capabilities. And then I wrote another book about how individuals could build their analytical capabilities called Keeping Up with the Quants. And then um, it was pretty clear that big data was coming along. Initially, I thought, eh, you know, I don't really need to do anything in that because it's not any different from what I've been writing about. But then I actually did some research and found out it was substantially different in many ways. So I wrote a book on that called Big Data at Work. And I don't know, that was maybe three years ago. And I started to see kind of as related to the big data work that more and more organizations were moving into, you know, what you might call autonomous analytics in a way as sort of, using tools like machine learning and so on to generate lots and lots of models and not eliminating a human from the process, but certainly leveraging them in a very dramatic way. And I'm a sociologist by academic background. I'm always kind of interested in what do things mean for people and organizations. And so I thought,, eh, nobody's really writing all that much about the, uh, a more detailed look at what does this mean for human jobs and, and organizations. Um, and so that's really this new book. Um, only humans need apply is about what does it mean for individuals? How can they still add some value in the in the world of of AI and cognitive technologies?
1: And so your book, the only humans need apply is looking at how AI is having an effect on and an impact on business. Can you describe, give, kind of give us an overview of the impact that you're seeing and what you expect to see in the future?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, there are, I, I think now, various schools. Um, Tim O'Reilly is in the very optimistic school. There's some other people in the very pessimistic school thinking that, you know, all jobs are going to go away or 47 percent of jobs are going to go away or we'll have riding in the streets or, or robot overlords will kill us all. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of in the middle in, in, in the sense that um, I do think it's not going to be an easy transition for individuals and and businesses. Um, but, um, and I think we should certainly not be complacent about it and assume, you know, the jobs will always be there. But, um, I think one, it's going to take a lot longer than people usually think to create, um, new business processes and new business models and so on. And that will mean that the jobs will largely continue for long periods. I mean, one of my favorite examples is bank tellers. We had about, half a million bank tellers in the US in 1980. So along come ATMs and online banking and so on. You'd think a lot of those tasks would be replaced. We have about half a million bank tellers in the United States in 2016. So um, nobody would recommend it as a you know growth career, but and it is slowly starting to decline, but I think we'll see that in a lot of different areas. Um, and then I think there will be a lot of good jobs working alongside these um, machines And that's really the primary focus of our book was identifying five ways that humans can add value to the work of smart machines.
1: And can you can you go into that a little bit and and kind of expand on what business leaders and employees need to know?
2: Sure. So um, there three of them involve working very closely with machines um, on a on a day to day basis. So we call one stepping in, which is kind of that's kind of the core augmentation role, it's smart humans working alongside smart machines, to, you know, day to day, to if the machine makes an error, the human could fix it. If the machine is making a pattern of errors, the human can say something's wrong here. We need to intervene. if there's something the machine just doesn't do well in that process, you know, the human, human could do it. So that's stepping in. Stepping up is kind of the higher level managerial role to say, huh, you know, how's this working overall? Hedge fund manager, all the trading is done through algorithms, but somebody's got to look at how's the portfolio performing? And is there something changing in the world that maybe means our algorithms are no longer the right ones for, for, to, for us to really prosper? And then the third category we called stepping forward is sort of building these machines, um, not just building them, but marketing them and supporting them and so on. The whole industry of of cognitive technologies and plenty of jobs there too, I think. Um, and then there are two categories that really are kind of in runs around this stuff. One we call stepping aside, which is picking a job that computers are not very good at today and probably aren't going to be for the foreseeable future. My favorite example is You know, one of my sons is a TV comedy writer. TV comedy is not, um, I mean, one could argue it's not that great from humans, but it's really bad from machines. (laughs) And so I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And then um, finally, uh, there are some jobs that could be done by machines, but probably won't be just because it won't be economical. So we call that stepping narrowly. Picking a field that is such a small niche that nobody would think to automate it. My um, The example that made me think of this category was a guy in the Boston area. His job, it's apparently a good job, he drives a Rolls Royce around the city, um, is connecting buyers and sellers of Dunkin' Donuts franchises. Hmm. You think, well, computers are pretty good at connecting buyers and sellers of things. Why doesn't somebody automate that? Well, it's just so narrow. I mean, who would think that that would be even a category worth? worth developing a system for. So other examples of that really narrow stuff that nobody would think would be worth the trouble.
1: Right. And so what what do leaders need to know to start negotiating this this path forward?
2: Well, I think negotiating is a good word. You know, if you're a leader, you probably have a number of people working for you and so you need to start telling them you have a more automated future likely to happen in your organization and in in their organization and start thinking about how you in particular might add value you know i think the first question is Do you want to work with a computer day-to-day or do you not want to work with a computer day-to-day and then you know we have those three categories in in the work with side and two categories in the not work with side there may be some other ones i don't know Uh, some people probably want to step out and retire uh before they have to make changes like this. But I think starting to prepare your organization saying, you know, our primary focus is going to be augmentation. There may be some jobs eliminated, but it won't be just because of of automation. And then that gives people the, the courage to start experimenting with the technology and they don't have to worry about, I'm going to automate myself out of a job. And, you know, think about what is it that humans bring to the party here? I mean, Automation, in a way, is a kind of a downward spiral. If everybody's automating something in an industry, the prices decline and uh, margins decline and innovation is harder because you kind of program this system to do things a certain way. So um, I think as a starting assumption, I think augmentation is a much more appealing one for a lot of organizations than eh, we're going to automate all the jobs away.
1: Right. And so in the short term, what cognitive technologies should managers be looking to focus on and, and applying now?
2: Well, yeah, it depends somewhat on your situation. But, say, you know, I come from an analytics background. If you're comfortable with analytics already, then machine learning, which sometimes called statistical learning, is really, is really using the same algorithms. It's just um, done in a more autonomous way way. We can run a lot more models. We can get much more granular in our predictions or or whatever. So that would be a course for people who already have analytical capabilities. You know, maybe you have some software where the vendor is saying, oh, by the way, we're putting AI into what we do here. So I think last week, Salesforce announced that it's putting um, Einstein capabilities in CRM. So if you have CRM, you think, well, it'd be good to be a little smarter about how we decide what customers to call on and decide um, which customers are interested in our product. Um, You know, why not use that? It's a very easy thing. Um, Maybe you have a lot of capabilities already. One of the examples we use in our book is Vanguard, the investment company. And they had all these capabilities for um, investor advice, like, you know, they had a risk set of risk questionnaires how risk oriented are you and they had some technologies for rebalancing your account and some algorithms for at different ages and risk profiles what stock and bond combinations you should have so they sort of automated all of that and they call it personal advisor services now they offer it to a much lower um asset value customer now, and they still combine it with human advice. So, you know, it's just stringing together and automating a little bit of of what you have. If you're really good and you have some really smart data scientists, then, you know, go the open source route, for example. But um, I think for most organizations, the software's free, obviously, but the people are going to be more expensive and hard to find. So that might not be the best case. If you want to go the high end, you know, Watson is the kind of high end of, AI is IBM's aiming it at transformative applications. If you want to transform your industry and you're willing to spend some time and some money doing it, then that's probably your answer. So it's a very contingent sort of thing.
1: Sure. And so looking more broadly, how do you envision AI impacting society as a as a whole? And what can we do to direct our path more toward the utopian side than the dystopian
2: side? Yeah, well, you know, as I say, I think there will be some job loss. And I think the people who will suffer the most will probably not actually be, you know, in the richer, more successful countries. I think a lot of outsourcing jobs are going to go away, which is too bad because that's really been great for India and some places in China and the Philippines and Eastern Europe and so on. If I were a leader in the United States, I would say, you know, the people who are going to need the most help are not so much the knowledge workers who are kind of used to learning new stuff and transforming themselves to some degree, but the, you know, the long distance truck drivers, we have 3 million in the United States. And I think my own feeling is that you'll probably see autonomous trucks on the interstate, maybe in special lanes or something before we see it in most City before we see car autonomous cars in most cities. And that's going to be tougher because truck drivers probably for as a class probably are not that comfortable in, you know, transforming themselves by taking courses here and there and learning the skills they need to learn. So in that case, maybe we will need some, some guaranteed income programs, or I'd actually prefer to see guaranteed job programs because there's some evidence that. If you have a guaranteed income, you know, you think, well, maybe they'll take up um, new sports or artistic pursuits or whatever. Turns out what most people do when they have a guaranteed income is they sleep more and they watch TV more. So (laughs) kind of not good for the society in general, I would say. But it's better than having them, you know, riot in the streets. So but guaranteed job programs worked in the Depression for, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps and artists and writers and so on. so we could do something like that whether this country would ever do it is not not so clear.
1: right. And what do you think is missing in the AI conversation today?
2: Um, well in a way, it's the same thing that I saw missing when I started working in analytics. It's a very technical conversation for the most part um, not that much yet on how does it change you know key business and organizational processes. How do we get some productivity out of it? I mean, we desperately need some more pro- t- productivity in this country. We haven't increased it much over the past several years. And I mean, a great example in healthcare, we have systems that can read radiological images and say, eh, you need a biopsy because this looks suspicious in a prostate cancer, breast cancer image, or this um, patho- pathology image doesn't look good, you know, you, you need further you know, biopsy or something, um, more detailed investigation. But we haven't really reduced the number of radiologists or pathologists at all. And so what's the economic value? We've had these for more than a decade. Um, What's the economic value if we're not creating any more productivity? So I think the business and social and political change is going to be a lot harder for us to address than the technical change. And I don't think we're really focusing much on that. I mean, there's no discussion of it in politics and not yet enough in the in the business um, context either.
1: And kind of shifting gears a little more personally in the past year or so, what would you say you've learned that surprised you?
2: Uh, well I'm always surprised by the technology but um, I when I in the past year or so I thought that I was really the only person taking this kind of augmentation oriented route but I've heard more and more, People start to say that's really the way to go and the most likely alternative anyway, so we should sort of plan for it. So, I mean, I still think I s- have said it in the greatest detail, but there seems to be some momentum building around it, which I'm very, very happy about. And the, the doom and gloom people are, I think, no longer winning as they may have been, you know, a year or so ago.
1: And so what and or who would you say is most inspiring you today?
2: Uh what is most inspiring me is really, I've always been really um, impressed by the people who take stuff in the outside world and turn it into major change within their organizations, the sort of early adopters of this to create business innovation. So I mean clearly we've seen a lot of that in the, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and so on, but in a way it impresses me even more when you start to see it in, a healthcare uh, a hospital or something like that. So you know, I'm really impressed by the people at MD Anderson and Memorial Sloan Kettering who are trying to figure out how do we make Watson cure cancers. A hugely really difficult problem, but they're willing to spend five or six years to, to address it. And at a place like MD Anderson, they're not only doing that, but they say, also, how can we use AI to pick the low-hanging fruit and really kind of do a lot of small tasks that AI could do better? So I'm, I mean, I, God knows the innovators in, in our society deserve a lot of credit, but I think it's just as innovative to kind of take these technologies and put them to work in organizations.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Tom. It's been fun. My pleasure.
0: You can find Tom on Twitter at TDAV and I'm at Jen Webb. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.